Reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us, your overwhelming love that you have for us. And we see that most prominently in Jesus Christ, who you have sent to become one of us, to live a perfect life, to die for us, to forgive us our sins. We're grateful, Spirit, that you uh, stir our affections for Christ all the more. And we pray, Spirit, that you would be with us this morning. Would you make the Word of God come alive? Help us to understand, to treasure it in our hearts, and for it to change us, to transform us more and more into the image of our beloved Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when uh, we, uh, a few years ago when the boys were a little bit younger than they are now, we still say this occasionally, uh, they're 13 and 10, but, uh, and maybe if you have smaller kids, you, you say this as well in your home, but we would tell them, obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart, right? I think most of us know that, right? Uh, obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. And uh, we could have very well titled the message this morning from this chapter in Philippians, from this passage, Obey Right Away, All the Way, with a Happy Heart. This is essentially what Paul is saying. Uh, but instead of naming that, uh, we're going to go with the less exciting, meaningful obedience, uh, because we're going to keep in the same theme that we've been in here over the past several weeks. And we've been saying in our series here in the book of Philippians, that ultimate meaning in life comes from believing the gospel of Christ. And a meaningful life is a life worthy of the gospel. That's the name of our series, Life Worthy of the Gospel. Our obeying God's commands has a purpose to it, and I hope that we will see that clearly today. And right off the bat, as uh, Kirk was reading this passage in chapter 2, we see that Paul gives a command. He gives a command at the very beginning, it says, work out your own salvation. But he's tying it to what comes before, what, be, what came before this passage. That's why the, the word therefore is there. And he wants the Philippians and he wants us to know why we need to obey. Why do we need to obey? We, we should tell our children, yes, obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. But we also need to tie to that why it's important to obey. Last week, we looked at meaningful humility. We looked at the life of Christ. We looked at his humiliation, that he came to earth 
He emptied himself and humbled himself all the way to the cross. He humbled himself in obedience to the Father. And so therefore, as as his children, we also obey. We obey God with humble, joyful hearts. In fact, the, the passage today makes it very clear that we actually cannot do that apart from God. We cannot, obey, we cannot obey God apart from him. And so if, if you're taking notes this week, this is the summary sentence. At, uh, one sentence, three parts this week. God is working meaningful obedience in us for his good pleasure, for our godly witness, and for our great joy. God is working meaningful obedience in us for his good pleasure for our godly witness and for our great joy. Our obedience to Christ is doing something. It's doing something for God and his glory, for our testimony of our faith to a dying world, and it's also that we might rejoice all the more in the Lord. So first, God is working meaningful obedience in us for his good pleasure. Uh, Let's dive into the text again. Look at verse 12. Paul's encouragement to the Philippians is that they have always obeyed. Do you see that? You've always obeyed as a church. They obeyed when he was with them, and and now in his absence, they are obeying. But he's calling them to do this more and more, especially because he's absent. Uh, This is uh, what every parent who is sending a child off to college is saying to them, is it not? You were with me in our home, you listened to me, you obeyed mom and dad, and now as we send you away, we send you to college, keep making good decisions. It's essentially what Paul is telling them. And notice that he uses the word beloved, therefore my beloved. It's another reminder in this book, as we've seen from the very beginning, how dearly loved the Philippians are. How much Paul loves his friends and how eager he is to remind them that their obedience is tied so greatly to the love that he has for them. He wants the best for them. His encouragement is for them to grow more and more in obedience. And so let me encourage you, City Church, uh, you guys have obeyed and are obeying. And the encouragement is to do that all the more. This is the call on my life. This is a call on your life. I've, I've witnessed, even in the two months, the short two months that I've been here, I've seen the faithful obedience that you have. And so as the Philippians hear from Paul, let us all hear that we do that all the more, that we continue to grow in our obedience. Look at the language he uses to describe obedience here, and this may be familiar to you. As we've said uh, throughout this whole series in the book of Philippians, there's a lot of memorable verses, and this may be one of them. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Now, this probably uh, raises a question right off the bat. How do we make sense of these two things? How do we make sense that we work out And God works. We work and God works. I would explain it like this. Because God wills and works by his great sovereignty in us, we work. Now there's much that we can say about that. That that could be a whole sermon in and of itself on this one verse alone. But this 
is speaking to the marriage of human responsibility and God's sovereign will. So that means that it's, it's not a self-salvation. This isn't we do it and then we might get some assistance from God. We might call upon him if we need help in our obedience or in our sanctification. It's also, on the other end of the spectrum, not a let go and let God type of mentality where we're, we are just passive, where we don't do anything. No, we, we put forth efforts. We, we actually come alive in obedience and in sanctification, and we work out our, our, our salvation, but we are dependent wholly on God alive in us. We come alive, but we're dependent on God living in us, knowing that he will complete the good work in us as we heard in chapter 1. And this is a work that he is pleased to do. And this is a work that is for his good purpose. His good purpose is that we would be sanctified people, meaning that we are growing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ over time. That's what sanctification is. And we do that by his power working through our work. And it's for his glory. As we saw last week, it's all for his glory. It's for the spread of his name and fame as his kingdom expands across the face of the earth. Now remember, uh, Paul is writing a group of people. He's not writing an individual. He's writing uh, his friends, a church in Philippi. And so we should remember that this passage is for the church, that the church works out its own salvation with fear and trembling. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't divorce that from our own individual sanctification. Uh, but it is a reminder that as we each work out our own salvation, it serves the whole body. That means that my obedience to the Lord affects you and vice versa. Your individual growth in Christ affects me and the rest of us here. Now, in the areas of unity and honor that we saw last week, this is an area that apparently the Philippians needed to grow in. We've talked about from the very beginning how Paul has had such a joyful heart. He loves his friends. It's so much more an encouraging letter to his friends in Philippi than it is, for example, in uh, Galatians when Paul comes in pretty hot. Uh, but there are some things that needed to be corrected in the church of Philippi. And it's in the area of unity. It's in the area of them showing honor to one another. And so, just like Paul's call on their, is, on their lives is to heed this responsibility to obey, we too need to heed the same responsibility, same call to obey. That means where, where I fall short in sin, that I need to repent and put to death selfish ambition and conceit. And I should do so with fear and trembling. This, this isn't a small work. It's weighty. It's work. Now, this does not mean, when, when Paul says, with fear and trembling, this does not mean, beloved, that we are living terrified of God. This does not mean that we are in danger of losing God's love for those found in Christ. We are safe and loved in Christ. But it does mean that we stand in awe of the almighty God who is working in us. 
This is a reverent fear, is it not? This should produce humility in us as we work out our salvation. The fear is that the king, the king in the universe, before whom every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, is inside of us. It's his power at work that brings about our salvation. That should bring fear and trembling to us. Uh, Jack last night had a good question for me. When I was talking about what what we were going to be talking about right now, uh, that the sermon was about meaningful obedience, and, and Jack had a really good question. He said, well, isn't obedience always meaningful? Now, that's a good question. Obedience is a good thing, and so it should always be meaningful. And I would say the answer is, it depends on who you are obeying. It depends. Obedience to Christ is an expression of love. And this is meaningful obedience because it pleases God. To live a life worthy of the gospel means obeying Christ as he works and wills it in us for his good purpose. Our obedience and sanctification are also aspects of how God has chosen a people for himself to be a light for the nations. And that brings us to the second point. Our meaningful obedience is for God's good pleasure, but it's also for our godly witness. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, of all the commands that Paul could have given the church in Philippi, this one might surprise us. Does it surprise you? Of all the things he's asking the church to do, he's saying, don't grumble and don't dispute. On the list of sins, these, these seem pretty minor at first thought. But grumbling is a bigger deal than we think. It's a bigger deal. The, the truth is, grumbling is a cancer that spreads quickly. It's not a small sin. It's not an acceptable personality trait. The Bible deals with it severely, and uh, it's deadly serious. Now, what is this grumbling and disputing going on in Philippi? That, that should be one of the things that we ask when we look at this text. Why would Paul feel the need to tell them, don't grumble and don't dispute? Well, if we look at the context, again, of this passage in Philippians, like we saw last week, Paul is addressing unity and honor in the church. And this is a theme that's going to keep coming up again and again as we go through the book of Philippians. And so what, what he says here is that work out your salvation. He's exhorting the church to work out their salvation by putting to death grumbling and disputing because Grumbling and disputing is leading to disunity and dishonor. Grumbling and disputing is leading to disunity and dishonor. And it's no different for us today. We see this play out all the time. I've seen this play out even in my own life, even this week. We see it play out in in the church. We see it play out in our marriages, in our families. This is why we talk about obeying with a happy heart, a happy heart as opposed to a grumbling heart. We've been uh, all week keeping a, uh, a dog in our house. We have a dog. We've been dog-sitting in our home this week 
Uh, I, I hesitate to tell you whose dog it is because I'm afraid that my mother-in-law will find out. Uh, it is her dog. I love her. I struggle to love her dog. Uh, her dog uh, does not like me, and this is the, the reason I struggle to love this dog. And it's not just uh, that the dog doesn't like me when I first come in the home, uh, when she first sees me, maybe she just is scared and so she barks. Uh, no, the dog barks at me all week. It didn't matter if I was in the same room with the dog for an hour, it would look at me and growl constantly. Uh, it, it was really remarkable at the level of hate it seems like this dog has for me. I've been nothing but sweet to this dog. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for my family to laugh at that because they know that I haven't been sweet to this dog all the time. But what's been ridiculous is the way that my mother-in-law's dog has triggered me all week. I've been in a bad mood. I've grumbled about this dog all week. And I even hesitate to talk about the dog in front of you because I feel like I'm uh, continuing to grumble before you about this dog. My, my attitude, though, has been horrible. I've been in a bad mood about the dog. Molly and I have actually gotten into a couple of fights about the dog. I've let a barky dog upend my week. And it has revealed the ugliness in my heart. It's revealed sin in my heart. I grumbled that she would stop barking. I grumbled that she would leave. I grumbled about how I can't react, uh, relax in my own home. If a, if a dog can do this to me, what do you think another person could do? If a dog can do this to me, what will people do to me? If this has been an occasion, occasion for me to grumble and dispute with my wife, what happens when people don't do things the way I want them to? What happens when God hasn't given me what I think I need right now. You can see, you can see how quickly things get really ugly. You know where we hear most in the Bible about grumbling is actually in the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament of the Israelites wandering through the desert. They grumbled against Moses for taking them away from all that good food in Egypt, and they complained about being thirsty and tired in the wilderness. And friends, it was grumbling. It was their grumbling that caused the, them to die. It actually caused them to die before going into the promised land. That's how serious God takes grumbling. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, talking about the Israelites. Nor should we grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These have been written down for our instruction. This is a lesson for us, grumbling is the opposite of the humility that we find in Jesus Christ. Christ never grumbled. Christ never grumbled. He never grumbled in his exodus. He never complained about taking the form of a servant. He did not dispute with God over the cross. In fact, the cross is where our grumbling was nailed on him. 
He took it. He took it so that we can now walk free of grumbling and complaining. This is part of our sanctification and working out our own salvation. But notice in verse 15, Paul gives a reason why we should do all things without grumbling. Look at me at verse 15 with me. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God is working meaningful obedience in our godly witness. Working out our own salvation with fear and trembling by killing grumbling is so that we might be blameless lights shining in a dark and twisted world. This is how the children of God should live. Our family traits are being non-grumblers and non-disputers. What's interesting is that Paul goes back to the Exodus narrative when he uses the phrase crooked and twisted generation. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. It says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. In the Exodus narrative, the Israelites, God's people, were the crooked and twisted generation. And here in Philippians, Paul is warning the church to avoid being like them. Avoid being like the Israelites, who are behaving like the nations around them. We should be distinct from the culture around us. We are lights. In fact, Using this term, lights of the world, Paul is once again directly pulling from a text in the Old Testament, this time in the book of Daniel. You can tell where Paul was in his Bible reading plan. He was right around here in the Old Testament in Exodus and Deuteronomy and now Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says this, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Christians are like stars that shine in the night sky, and their names are written in the book of life. But even more to the point, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that our being lights in this world has a purpose. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, the world is miserable enough. What is attractive about the church if it's miserable as well? I don't know if any of you are on uh, the Nextdoor app. Anyone, anyone use Nextdoor wherever you live? Uh, I had to take it off my phone, actually. And the reason is because, well, by the way, if you don't know what Nextdoor is, it's like a virtual uh, neighborhood association, I guess, that you have. Uh, you can get, like, updates on what's going on uh, around the block or on the streets. But what I found more than anything, it was just an occasion uh, to see people complain and be bitter and exercise skepticism and anger. It was like one big frown. The Nextdoor app is one big frown. But this is, the, this is the world we live in. This is the culture that we are swimming in all the time. People are angry. 
and bitter and grumble. And the church should be different. The church should be distinct from the dark, twisted generation that we live among. The question is how? How do we do that? Well, growing in obedience to Christ and doing all things without grumbling or disputing is a light to the world. It is a testimony. It is a witness. And instead of speaking grumbling words, we are to hold fast. We are to speak the word of life. You see that in verse 16. So we're not grumbling or disputing, but we hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud, this is Paul saying, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The word of life, we hold fast to the word of life. The word of life is the gospel itself. The word of life is Christ himself. Listen to 1 John 1 verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Christ has come into the world to make a way for wicked grumblers like you and me. He's made a way for us to move from death to life. Jesus is the light of men and the word of life. And those of us who are now found in him by faith have the mind of Christ, like we said last week. We have the mind of Christ. We can speak the very words of life, the words of Christ to a crooked and twisted generation. In the very way that Christ shined a light into our dark hearts, we can be lights that point dark hearts of the world to him. Gospel words drive out grumbling words. We don't respond to the gospel with anger. No, we respond to the gospel with thanksgiving and humility and praise. A life worthy of the gospel gives off light. This is how our meaningful obedience connects to our godly witness. Lastly and closely related, God is working meaningful obedience in us for our great joy. So for his good pleasure and purpose, for our godly witness, and now for our great joy. Here are the last two verses this morning, 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling is It's work, as we said earlier. It is work. It's difficult. And it is a process of pouring ourselves out, of pouring ourselves out like Paul for the sake of the gospel. And yet, it should be a joyous thing. Some of you have uh, run marathons before. I've not not run a marathon. I've, I've run a couple of 5Ks in my life. But if you haven't run a marathon or 5k or 10k you've probably at least been to a race before and what do you see at a race if you go to downtown fort worth the cowtown marathon uh, you're going to see several friends and family lining the streets and what are they doing they're encouraging right they they have water uh, they may have signs uh, they're they're saying you can do it keep going and, and why would they do that why why line the street and say those things to runners. 
as an encouragement, to bring them joy, knowing that they are doing something difficult, that they are putting forth a lot of effort to run the race. It would be even more difficult for someone to run a race if there was not encouragement. No one goes to a race and screams, man, you look, you look terrible, what's going on? No one goes to a race and says, that looks really hard, I hope you can make it. No, everyone is encouraging. Say, you, you're going to make it. Keep going. Keep going. Being obedient to Christ will bring suffering. But we are to be glad and rejoice. Now, what about this drink offering? You might have had questions about that. Why is Paul using this imagery of being poured out like a drink offering? Well, the Philippians... Uh, would have been very familiar with uh, basically a ceremony that was actually done in both the Greek and Jewish cultures where wine or another drink would be poured out on an altar as a sacrifice to God. It was an act of service. And Paul is not just describing what his ministry is to be, but what all of our lives are to be. That we are all to pour ourselves out as an act of sacrifice. We are to pour ourselves out in the way that we die to ourselves and live a life worthy of the gospel. After all, it was Christ, it was Christ that spilled his blood. The wine that we will drink in just a few minutes in the Lord's Supper, Christ poured his blood out as a drink offering on the altar of the cross. As we saw last week, his was a life of lowly service and emptying himself to rescue us. And we know that he did it with joy. It was the joy set before him that he carried his cross to Golgotha. He gave up his final breath in obedience to the Father that you and I might have fullness of joy in a great salvation. Friends, what would it look like to model Christ in joyful sacrifice and service to God and to one another? What if, what if gladness spread throughout our families and our friendships and our church instead of grumbling? What if we worked out our own salvation with fear and trembling and with great joy? What if we were blameless, joyful lights in a twisted and crooked generation. We can only be such things by God's grace. And so, as we end, let me uh, leave us with a, a few reminders uh, by way of application. So, three things for us to take away from our time together from this passage. How does this apply to us? How does it apply to our friends and family and the world around us. Well, number one, non-Christians are trying right now at all times to work out their own salvation. Non-believers are trying right now to work out their own salvation, but they have no viable way to do so. There is a guilt whose punishment is death, and that is on all of us because we have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why we need saving. It's why we need saving. Non-believers know this. Your friends and family who do not, do not know Jesus 
know this, but they have no solution for redemption. Their recourse is either to self-atone for sin or to shift blame on someone else to bear the guilt. This might make them feel innocent, but we know that sin remains. And sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for, so the question is, who will pay for it? Believers, we need to show non-believers by the way we live in obedience to Christ that our sin has been paid for and that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We don't just feel not guilty. We've actually been declared not guilty by God in our justification in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is good news. And that is the good news that the world desperately needs this morning. Number two, some of us think we have the gift of discernment or that we have a critical eye and think that we are serving others with our helpful feedback. Maybe. Maybe. Or you might be just a grumbler. I hate seeing grumbling and disputing in the church excused by calling it a healthy critique. I've heard this before. I've even done this before. There's a difference between helpful, humble conversations about issues in the church. We want to have really good dialogue about disagreements in our families, disagreements among friends, maybe even in our discipleship groups. There is a difference between humble, helpful conversations about disagreements and murmuring hearts that see arguing as sport. Do you know the difference? Let's ask God. Let's ask Christ to share, to share wisdom with us, to bring us wisdom so that we might know what is the difference between grumbling and healthy disputing, healthy conversations. Number three, when I look at my life, most of the grumbling in my life has come from the fact that sanctification is harder than I thought it was going to be. Does anyone relate? When I was saved, went on the path of knowing and treasuring and loving Christ, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Working out my own salvation with fear and trembling is harder than I thought it was going to be. And I believe that sooner that you and I understand that there are no shortcuts in meaningful obedience, the less tempted we are going to be to grumble. Sanctification has been described as long obedience in the same direction. Have you heard that before? Long obedience in the same direction. It's lifelong. And it's not linear. It's not smooth sailing. It's fits and starts. It's stops and starts. It's seasons of fast growth and seasons of slower growth. David Pallison is a biblical counselor. He said that we need to lengthen our view of the battle as we fight our sin and work out our salvation. We need, to, we need to zoom out. We need to consider that this battle is lifelong. And if we think that it's going to happen overnight, we will be sorely disappointed, friends. But we should never forget that we are not alone. Remember, it is God 
who's in us, working in us, and willing in us for our salvation. He is always with us. He will never forsake you or leave you, friends. And this is a miracle. Do you realize the miracle it is that the Holy Spirit resides in us and works in us so that we might obey, so that we might obey Christ. We are obedient to Christ to the end of the race. And when we cross the finish line and see the face of Jesus, we will know that we did not run the race in vain. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that this is what you are doing in our lives. That we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as you work in us for your good pleasure. May that bring us to our knees in humility and thanksgiving. And we confess we fall short. We confess that we grumble. We confess that sanctification is hard. And there are times where we sin and don't want to participate. Spirit, I pray that you would do the work of conviction, that we might repent and keep walking and working out our salvation. We know that this is uh, for our own good and your glory and a testimony to the lost and dying world around us. May we be non-grumblers and non-disputers. May we also have great joy. And may that be a distinct light in a dark world. Father, I, I pray that you would continue to do this work in City Church. And I'm so grateful that we have seen the fruit of these works, that we've seen the fruit of sanctification. And may we do it all the more. May we never give up, knowing that you have never given up on us. You will never leave us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.